Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 81, from March 1st, 2007, Hard Drive Reliability. Security Now is brought to you by Astaro, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway, on the web at www.astaro.com. And by Nerds on Site, helping people with technology all over the world. Visit IWantToBeANerd.com. It's uh, This is the security now I've been waiting for for a while. Leo Laporte here. Steve Gibson is in his laboratory watching hard drives spin. He's, have you spin t- right. Yeah. Spin right. They're spinning right there. And it's, yep, spinning right and spinning wrong. Have you turned off all the noisemakers? Ready to go. You have. He has. Uh, someday I want you to leave them on. That'd be fun. We'll hear, hear uh, uh, Fred Flintstone say yabba dabba do every, every so often in the background. Well, that's when you get a, a new registration for Spinrite and different yep. sounds for different people's emails. And do you, uh, yes, do you have any like really cons. like rude sounds for anybody? No, I've got some friends who have totally gone sound happy. It's just, you know, I'll be talking to them on the phone and I mean, it's like, it's sort of like people who have disco music for their ringtone on their phone. <laughs> it's like, oh, just Please. what happened to a simple little chime? You know, after, after a long time playing with ringtones, I finally went to the nostalgia ringtone, which is basically a phone ringing. Yep. And it's not yep. so bad. And nobody looks at me funny when my phone rings. They used to. They exactly. Used to, last thing I had was the call for help theme. That really put it over the top. That was it. Yeah. When, when, when the phone starts doing a cha-cha all by itself. <laughs> and, I mean, and then keeps on going. Yes. I mean, you know. Meanwhile, some embarrassed person is like fumbling through their briefcase <laughs> or a, through, through her purse or something. Because, you know, it's like, okay, well, we all know. Well, if it's on the table and the vibrates on, it might quite literally be doing the cha-cha right across yeah. the table. I've seen that happen. <laughs> Hey, we want to welcome a new sponsor uh, to the show. We're very glad to have them. You had coffee with them when you were up in Toronto the last time. They're worldwide. They have been Security Now followers from the beginning, Leo. I'm so glad. Their their name is Nerds On Sight. Don't laugh. Nerds On Sight. And their specialty is helping people with their technologies. Now, if in the past you've thought, oh, I would like to get a consultant to come in. Uh, somebody who would help me troubleshoot my system or help me configure it or set it up. Uh, but you've wondered, how can I know whether they're any good or not? And that's really kind of the problem. That's why you're going to love Nerds on Site. All nerds on Nerds on Site are independent contractors, but they're certified. Uh, and they have a university of nerdology. <laughs> and in fact, they're looking for new nerds. So uh, that's one of the reasons they wanted to buy some ads, because they want to tell you that if you want to be a nerd, you can. Nerds on Site is in Canada, U.S., Mexico, England, Australia, South Africa, and Bolivia. Wow! And, uh, well, and you know, and the uh, the the question I get all the time is, how do I know if my computer has malware or spyware on it? And it'd be you know, it'd be neat if you were able to say, oh, just you know, call a nerd and yeah. they'll come over and fix it for you, and somebody or, who's or really check it good. out for you. They have yep. uh, over two hundred fifty core competencies, ranging from systems architecture design. I mean, high end stuff, software development, on source IT departments to desktop support, and, and even, yes, they'll come to your house, residential or small business 
IT services, whether it's Cisco, Oracle, PC, or Mac, they need it. Fix-It technicians, website designers, programmers, project managers, sales trainers, sales trainers, security experts. I know there are a few of those listening. Antivirus gurus. Just go to IWantToBeANerd.com. I want to be a nerd.com. And by the way, there's a video there of their coffee with you, Steve. Yeah, I spent about, I think about four hours with them last time I was in Toronto to, to come up and do the call for help show with you, Leo, because I had some, some time and, and I had never met them uh, person to person, although we, we'd had some, some interaction in email and, and in teleconferences. So it was really fun. And there's pictures on there of their cute little uh, red, uh, Volkswagen Bugs with the Nerds on Site logo in UK and Australia and South Africa. I just think it's neat that they're global. This is our first, uh, actually not really, because I guess Astaro is also a global company. We That's the neat thing about podcasting. We get we get the global companies. Yep. Go to IWantToBeANerd.com and you can take the Are You a Nerd test. <laughs> and we know you'll pass. Qualify. And we thank them for supporting security now. So before we uh, get into the meat and potatoes of uh, our episode, which is, is going to be about what, Steve? We're going to talk, as we promised last week, about the implications and results of Google's really interesting study into their findings about the hard drive reliability within their network of hundreds of thousands of hard drives. Oh, excellent. Excellent. Yeah, really, really neat topic. And, you know, we it's it's not mainstream internet security or PC security, really. But so many people wrote to me and even to you after the, this this uh, Google study in PDF form came out saying, oh, would you guys please talk about this? It's like, yeah, I know. We, we can certainly spend a week on this. So that's I think what we're it's fascinating. Do. And there is, uh, you know, and we should point out, I mean, uh, Steve is a security expert, but really <clears throat> I knew him first. Well, first I knew you as <laughs> the designer of the light pen for the Apple II. But yep. after that, I knew you uh, and have known you for years as an as a hard drive expert. So because of Spinrite. So this is really your area of expertise. I will I will never forget Leo that the episode of Call Oh wait, it was the screensavers where you and Kate were standing side by side with a with a computer and you weren't sure what she was going to be talking about, but she had some sort of like a Kate's Discoveries segment right, or something like right, that. Right. And she that's when she discovered Shields Up. Oh. And so she's talking about this. And this is a really cool site done you know, by Steve Gibson. And you know, I think you were like sort of looking off set or something and, and didn't really hear her. And then, and then you, you like realized she was talking about me. And you said, wait, Steve is doing Internet security? I thought he was hard drives. Yes, exactly. It was really fun. There, when was when did that shift happen for you? Um, it, it was at, at a point when the company sort of was going along. Spinrite was doing fine. And we were we were setting up an ISDN line to our office for the first time to have, you know, that level of connectivity rather than all just having modems. Mm-hmm. And and I remember scanning the neighborhood around the IP address we were given, and I found all kinds of C drives back in the wide-open Windows file uh, sharing uh. days. And I thought, my God, there's no way people know their C drives yeah. are on the Internet. Yeah. And so I, I said, okay, I got to do something about yeah. this. And yeah. I launched the whole Shields Up idea. That's fantastic. Well, uh, we're going to talk about hard drives in a bit, but first let's cover uh, some errata, some uh, follow-ups. In fact, there's some right. very interesting stuff to say about uh, our last show. Well, yes. Well, in, in fact, we received a piece of email that reminded me 
that XP has a default setting. Remember we were talking about this notion of infrastructure networks versus ad hoc networks. We're talking about wireless uh, networks. You can have one with a base station, which is infrastructure. But you can also use your laptop or even desktop as a base station, in effect, and that's called an ad hoc network. Right. In fact, uh, Windows refers to it as computer to computer. Right. For what I you know, sort of to explain to people, I think more what they mean rather than saying ad hoc. Right. Anyway, in you know the the, the ad hoc networks are a problem, and I had seen several security issues relative to this even before the issue came up last week like for example of people getting infected on airplanes because a bunch of a bunch of of travelers are using their laptops and if the laptops are able to connect to each other there are viruses and and types of malware which use ad hoc networks to do cross computer infiltration so the 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 kind of interesting thing is that that connection is the default it's automatic yes thank you microsoft it is the default for xp to connect to either type of network either to an access point or to another computer so what what i've done is on the notes page for this episode episode 81 uh i'm excited leo where we're heading here towards number 100 <laughs> the big 100 episodes yeah, under our we'll belt have, have a party um so on the notes page, I have a step-by-step instructions showing how you can you can click on your wireless connector icon down in the in in the Windows tray and and step through a couple clicks to get to the dialog where you're able to say I only want to connect to infrastructure networks, not both ad hoc and infrastructure. And it's I mean it's really the case that this is wrong. And that this is one of those things that that XP should really be defaulting to to infrastructure only. But again, in the interest of compatibility and not having people call Microsoft and ask them why they you know they can't connect their computers together, Microsoft has it set so that you can connect to anything. Even though most people, I mean almost all people, are connecting to an access point, you know, a so-called base station rather than wanting to go computer to computer directly, you know, without going through a base station. Well, let's underscore, it's dangerous to just uh, uh, willy-nilly connect to another computer uh, without asking. And so you do want to disable this. The default is uh, to have it turned on. I want to thank Evan Katz. I don't know how you found out about this, but Evan... uh, Oh, I think it was Evan, Yeah, from Manhattan, uh, who sent me the email and I forwarded it along to you. Actually, he sent it to support... Sales. Oh, I, I got it from every direction. <laughs> he sent every every address he could think of for you, and uh, he talks step by step. In fact, it looks like you're using his screenshots. He gave us some great screenshots. So thank you, Evan, for uh, that tip. Now, what about Vista? Uh, good question. I dug around in Vista for about half an hour. It's still a frustrating experience for me, Leo, because I'm not using it mainstream myself. I don't expect I will for a while, but I could not find. A similar thing in Vista. Maybe Evan will write to us again and tell us where it is in Vista. Um, although those are my screenshots. Oh, they're yours. I, I, I didn't see the one. Of course, that, they look Evan the same took, yeah. because they're the same dialogue. So that's yeah. one, my conf- source of my confusion. All right. Exactly. I'll give you credit for that. Um, so we don't know in Vista, and if somebody knows, I'd love to. I'd love to hear about that. Uh, and yep. I will. St- I will dig around a little bit uh, too on my one because I have a Wi-Fi laptop uh, on Vista, and I certainly uh-huh. don't want that on. No, it's it's something that no one should have on. So it is something that 
we wish XP had defaulted to off, and then there wouldn't be this this bizarre, as we discussed about it last time, this strange, you know, free, free Wi-Fi, public Wi-Fi, yeah. free public Wi-Fi that is literally jumping from machine to machine because it ends up it ends up being enumerated as available networks, right. and then it gets stored in the registry, and then it that machine will will enumerate it to the next one. So <laughs> it's it's it, not a virus, but it is viral crazy. in the way it spreads. It's kind of interesting. There were two other um, two other little articles that I picked up in. In the SANS newsletter this week that I just wanted to share with listeners that I thought would find that sort of interesting and in some cases distressing. Uh, the first is interesting. Um, a man is facing prison. This was picked up by USA Today had the story. Um, it says that the subject is man faces prison for uploading movie to the Internet. Um, what happened was this guy's uh, Salvador Nunez Jr., his sister is an Oscar screener. Who received a a copy of um, uh, I had it right here in front of me. Oh, of 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 the internet. I'm sorry, of the movie Flushed Away, the um the the, the animated Flushed Away movie. Right, right. Because she got a screener copy, it had a digital watermark right. in it. Right. She gave it to her brother, who unfortunately thought, "Oh, let's share this with everybody else." And so uploaded it to the internet, Oops. and s- someone sent a, a note to the authorities who found it and tracked it down. Were able to backtrack it to her, and he confessed that yes, he, he had uploaded that and one other movie to the internet. So uh, he got caught, um, you know, in a way that was directly trackable due to the fact that there was a digital watermark, a unique digital watermark in the copy of the movie that he had received from yeah. his sister. They started doing that last year or the year before because they had a real problem with screeners leaking out. And so that's right. why, yeah. The, the other story is worrisome. Uh, it turns out that uh, law enforcement in Germany, I was thinking about this again when you were talking about how we have a global audience, law enforcement in Germany is using custom malware to infect the computers of people they want to surveil without their knowledge. See, now, to me, well, certainly in the U.S., that would be illegal. And to me, yep. that seems really, really uh, creepy. It's Well, it's aggressive. And in fact, these, the, the story came to light over uh, the register.com carried it because a German magistrate denied the, the uh, German police the... The, the, the right to do this. They apparently went before the court and said, you know, this is what we want to do. And he says, no, this is, you know, this is a, an unreasonable thing for you to ask. It turns out that there is a division, however, that is still working. It's that uh, it's now called the uh, the uh, German Trojan because it's, it's going to be installed in people's machines if the police are able to do this. And apparently there's a, a bill that is getting ready to be put through that will make this legal, which is, you know, sort of resolve this gray area that it's in right now and allow the German authorities to install this in people's machines. I don't know. It's not clear to me how they would get it into a machine. You know, that problem still needs to get solved, if presuming that it isn't already solved. But it, it is a, it's a creepy development, the idea that that there could be software that is 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 known by authorities installed surreptitiously in people's machines specifically for the purpose of surveilling them i can give you a similar example we talked about uh this week on twit um a citizen in, in british columbia 19 year old kid 
who wanted to help catch uh, child molesters posted a Trojan horse posing as a picture uh, of an underage child on uh, several uh, child porn news groups, kitty porn news groups, uh, and for the last few years has been monitoring the people who downloaded that Trojan. And in fact, a judge in uh, your part of the world, uh, Southern California, was successfully prosecuted using evidence that this kid generated by illegally uh, using a Trojan horse to get into the judge's computer. Now, uh, I I admire the results, but I can't say I admire the means. Well, in fact, I remember um, there was a a group of of security people, um, among them me, who were uh, talking to the attorney general Back in the days of the internet worms, when when the code red and NIMDA worms were, you know, really being a problem, and we were asking whether it was possible to to basically fix these machines which had the problem, since the IPs of the inbound traffic of the worm could not be spoofed. We had the IPs of all the machines that were infected, so it was so tempting mm. to to create. Our own, our own inoculation essentially for those machines, and and go and and you know remove this software, you know fix this problem in the machines that were infected, and you know a- anybody running a honeypot could have collected the IPs of the infected, you know worm transmitting machines. Anyway, of course the 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 word came back with no in no uncertain terms that it was absolutely illegal for us to make any unauthorized modification to a machine over which we don't have right. any rights at all, even when we're doing like something good, right. something that the owner would almost certainly want us to do, like, you know, fix their machine for them because it's actively broadcasting internet worms. It's like, no, you know, it's just, there's no way that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. Very interesting stuff. I and mean, certainly an ethical issue that uh, we haven't heard the last of. Yeah. Uh, are you? Are, shall we get to hard drives? Sure. Any, any other errata? Before we do, nope. I, I just want to mention that I uh, I had a very good experience with a certain program this week, <laughs> known as Spinrite. That is so cool. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm just glad I know you. That's all I can say because I, I forgot my I left lost my serial number and I and I had burned a CD and this is one of the good things you could do with Spinrite is burn a CD because you do want to boot to the Spinrite CD so that you can be in uh, DOS when you're doing the checking. Right. Um, and uh, I don't know what I did with my CD, and I couldn't find it. I went, oh, uh, you know, and I, I realized later I shouldn't have bugged you. I could have gone to the website and, and re- retrieved my serial number that way. Thank you for being very patient with me. But the good news is this: the computer that was dying is the one I'm using right now to record this. I record all the podcasts on. Uh, it's a pretty important computer, um, and it wasn't booting. And uh, it said there was something, you know, couldn't find a, an operating system. So uh, I ran spin yep. right on it. Uh, ran the long maintenance, you know, the check and the maintenance fix overnight on all the drives. It's been flawless ever since. Ah, uh, I just love that, Leo. Nice that job. is so cool. I so am cool. grateful to you. Well, I just thank you so much. Well, for, and for what it's worth, um, the the e-commerce system that I wrote, of course, in assembly language to <laughs> to to run all of this. Um, uh, if any user holds on to their transaction code that they receive when they purchase Spinrite, that enables them at any time in the future to go back and grab a copy of Spinrite. So, you know, if they were somewhere else, I mean, you just use a web browser, so you could even do it if, if you were away from home and, like, your your laptop started giving you trouble. Um, and also, for people who 
don't have that written down in their wallet or you know are or ha- have lost it um, they can certainly contact our sales email at any time give us enough information to find you in our database and we'll just let you know what your transaction code is and and then you're off and away so even people with less you know direct connection to Emilio <laughs> than you have are are similarly able to get themselves you know back to their copy of Spinrite if if they don't have it when they need it we all have a friend at Spinrites it's a grc.com is the website if you want to read testimonials s p i n r i t e dot info uh, i can't recommend it more highly the ultimate disk recovery and maintenance utility and i've used it before to save drives it's this is just the most recent example it, it's such a great thing to have in your toolkit so, Steve, let's. Speaking of drives, um, while we're on the topic, while yes. we're on the topic, now we should say this isn't exactly a security uh, topic, but but I think when you have kind of one of the foremost experts on hard drives available, that it really would be it's important. It behooves us to talk about this Google study. I, let me just ask right up front: uh, when you read this, were you surprised by the results? Not one bit. Um, one of our favorite expressions at GRC for for, for years. Uh, has been that smart is dumb. <laughs> I like that. You're talking about the smart drive capability built into hard drives. Yes, the self-monitoring uh, and reporting technology, S-M-A-R-T. Um, or, I'm sorry, smart monitoring analysis and reporting technology. The The, the history of the so-called smart technology is, is not well known. Uh, back in the early days of the PC... When drives were beginning to become sort of, I want to say, self-aware, uh, you know, like Skynet with, with Terminator. <laughs> but when, when drives were beginning to get intelligent, remember that the, the earliest drives, you actually had a, a, a disk controller with a whole bunch of stuff on it. And then a, a one or two cables that went to the drive, sometimes a serial cable and a radial cable. So you daisy chain one and, and then you'd have a direct a radial cable from the drive to from the controller to each of your drives and these drives were really so you know they were dumb drives they were you know spinning platters read write electronics and in many cases a stepping motor that just stepped the heads in and out and those drives held you know all of 10 megabytes right. or 20 megabytes or you know 40 even of data that was a big day i remember when they when they went from 20 to 40 it's like wow, yeah. Now we got them to RLL, and that was a big jump. Oh, right, right. So, so what happened was when drives were dumb like that, there wasn't anything you could really do on the drive. When drives went to the IDE interface standard, what happened was essentially the the well, in fact, IDE stands for Integrated Drive Electronics. The controller was moved onto the drive. That is like. A disk controller was moved onto the drive so that all of the data flow, uh, the serial data flow off, um, on and off the heads and the, and the control, that was all made local. And a, an interface was then created that allowed you to use a, a simple parallel cable down to the motherboard or at that time to even a, a very simple IDE controller. But the idea was the drive started being smart and had its own microprocessor on it. And, you know, so now it was sort of autonomous. Well, Compaq was the C-O-M-P-A-Q, of course, was the big leader in the, as you remember, in the clone market at the time. They were the first people who came up with a clean room created BIOS. That is a, a, a BIOS clone of the PC, of the original IBM PC that had 
never where the the authors of the BIOS had never had any contact with the source code which IBM published in their technical reference manual. So in order to avoid any possibility of copyright infringement, Compaq put a bunch of engineers in literally locked them up in a room, gave them and these are people who had never even seen the source code for the IBM BIOS and but from the BIOS's specification they wrote their own BIOS from scratch. So Compaq of course took off as a major clone of the IBM PC. IDE drives began happening and they began failing. And what Compaq did was essentially they turned around to the drive industry and said, look, I think this was Seagate Quantum and Connor Peripherals at the time were the three, and Western Digital joined in later. Compaq said, look, um, we're going to tell you what you have to do. Well, the drive manufacturers were not excited about being told what they were going to do by Compaq, but Compaq's purchasing power was king at the time. I mean, Compaq was buying so many drives that the manufacturers said, well, okay, what do you want? And Compaq said, we need some way of knowing what's going on in, the dr- in inside the drive because as the drives became intelligent, that allowed them to hide what was going on inside. And so Compaq felt like, wait a minute, we, we, don't, we don't know what's happening now because there's this intelligence in the drive that has created sort of an, a, an abstraction of a hard drive storage. And of course, that's even more true these days when drives are like self-relocating sectors and doing all kinds of stuff autonomously. They really do present this opaque wall. So Compaq said, you need to give us a way to know what's going on behind the scenes in the drive. Well, this so this this smart specification SMART was created to to allow a means for the drive to publish some information about itself. The problem is that in order to get the manufacturers to agree and they were not happy about this, they the specification had to be left very loose. You know, it'd be like, well, we'd like you to tell us sort of like give us some health parameters that when they when they go lower, that's worse, and when they go higher, that's better. And you know, and, and Compaq tried to nail the manufacturers down to a tighter specification, but it just wouldn't work. So what we've ended up with, even today, you know, what, fifteen years later, is a specification which is sorrowfully weak. And in fact, the the Google paper talks about this in several instances where they're where they're they're seeing no uniform meaning behind many of these smart parameters across a large install base of hard drives. Well, they even they even go farther. They say a lot of the failed drives had no smart errors at all. Well, now that's sort of a different issue. Um, that that's the. Uh, issue of how effective is all of this as opposed to you know is it what is yeah. what is all of this yeah right. that, and of course you know that certainly that, that that that's a perfect segue leo because certainly the goal of smart was to allow software running in the machine to keep an eye on what the drive was doing and predict hard drive failures that was the whole idea the problem is and in fact the reason that we've always used the slogan smart is dumb at grc is you know we see dead drives all the time that had that's that where the smart system says ah everything's fine 
So it's all working. the drive no problem. Exactly. Yeah, the, the, yeah. the drive can die spontaneously, and sm- while Smart is completely happy and sees nothing going wrong. At the same time, there are drives which, which look like they're on their last throws um, from, a, from a standpoint of, of the Smart data that just keep on going for years. So, so the, the the problem really, and this is what Google's findings were. At, well, actually, Google found a lot of things, but relative to Smart, they found a a very disappointing lack of correlation between, um, uh, well, based on extensive statistical analysis of over a hundred thousand drives um, within their system, a, a very weak analysis. Um, a correlation. Yeah. Thank you. Yes, a, 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 a correlation of of what's what Smart showed to the actual failure of the drives. The reason I was pausing there is I was trying to find the exact re- reference. It said um, um, in the study, it says, uh, and I'm reading from their report on the predictive power of Smart parameters. It says, given how strongly correlated some Smart parameters were found to be within. Uh, with, with higher failure rates, we were hopeful that accurate predictive failure models based on smart signals could be created. Predictive models are very useful in that they can reduce service disruption due to failed components and allow for the more efficient schedule maintenance process to replace the less efficient parens reactive repair procedures. In fact, one of the main motivations for smart was to provide enough insight into disk drive behavior to enable such models to be built, you know, which is a long-winded way of saying we hoped that Smart would allow us to know when a drive was going to die before it does. It then well, they weren't alone. For- I think we all hoped that. Yeah. <laughs> but can, I think can, we all knew, anybody who had any experience with drives, and I've said this for a long time, knew that really Smart didn't seem to have that kind of ability. Right. Well, And if it did, we'd all be using it a lot more than we are. Because, you know, right. I mean, it, it, it's there, but it's not highly used. And, and just to finish this one thought here from their report, uh, reading from the report, it says, after our initial attempts to derive such models yield relatively unimpressive results, we turn to the question of what might be the upper bound of the accuracy of any model based solely on smart parameters. Our results are surprising, if not somewhat disappointing. Out of all failed drives, over 50% of them have no count in any of the four strongest smart signals, namely scan errors, relocation count, offline relocation, and probational count. In other words, models based only on those signals can never predict more than half of the failed drives. So, so essentially what, what, what Google found is that many drives were failing, more than half of theirs were failing, where nothing showed up at all in the smart subsystem, and and also that um, that exactly the reverse was happening is that smart was showing things where drives never failed. There were things they found, for example, when they would ask the smart system to scan the drive. If a error was found during that scanning, the drive was 39 times more likely to fail in the next 60 days than all other drives, except that it turns out 39 times more likely wasn't predictive enough to say, okay, we should replace a drive because it turns out that there were lots of drives that had scan errors that never failed. 
So, I mean, it just, it, it's, it, useless. it's, it's basically, <laughs> yes. Um, it, it's funny too, because in Spinrite 6, I incorporated, as you probably saw when you were running Spinrite just recently, Leo, I incorporated a real time monitor right. of, of the whole smart subsystem. Now, there are interesting things that you can see. Uh, Spinrite will show you these smart parameters being driven down. One of the, one of the things that makes Spinrite different than just scanning passively is it's reading and writing and reading and writing and and writing to the drive essentially you know really working the surface so rather than just being a read only scan spin writes is a full read write stress that, that inverts all the bits writes them back reads them back reinverts them writes them back reads them back so it's it's basically checking the entire surface aggressively so it's What's really interesting is that we'll often see that the smart parameters, which are normally running okay on weak drives, they will be driven, sort of these health parameters get driven down for a while while Spinrite is running on the drive and then gradually recover. Um, If they don't go critical, it's probably not something to worry about, but if you were watching it happen, you could compare this behavior of your drive to its behavior, for example, six months from now, and if it started seeming like it was worse, then you'd get some qualitative sense that the drive was, you know, not doing very well. So anyway, it's unfortunately just the smart stuff by itself, as Google found and as all of our experience has, has shown, just, you know, isn't useful enough. And, you know, imagine software saying, oops, you need to replace your drive. Well, who's going to believe that? I right. mean, you know, certainly in a mission critical situation where you absolutely can't have a drive fail, maybe that's interesting, except that what Google found is also that there was some infant mortality behavior. That is, they found that younger drives just installed had a higher failure rate for the first three and, and, and then even six months than drives that had been there for a year. So, so the idea would be was that that you know newly minted drives could have something wrong with them that had sort of gotten through quality control in manufacturing that would manifest to the detriment of the drive during its first few months of use. After that time, you get to a point where okay, the the drive is is now sort of matured and it's going to give us a nice long life. What what designers have always assumed was that the the statistical curve would look it's called a bathtub curve where it's it's high initially it drops down after you move out of the infant mortality period then maybe hopefully for five or six years you have relatively low failure rate and then at some point later on just due to the drives aging and fatigue and mechanical wear and tear the 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 reliability begins falling again and the rate of failure goes back up thus the other side of this so-called bathtub curve what google found and this was what we we briefly discussed last week and it's what's so disturbing is that in fact drives 2 years old were were experiencing suddenly much higher failure rates than drives 1 year old and 3 years old were even more you may remember, you may remember i think it was 8.6% annual failure rate meaning you know two out of every 25 drives is failing every year at 3 years old well it's it's kind of still a bathtub curve it's just a uh, shallow it's a uh, narrower bathtub than we 
would expect. <laughs> it's a one-year bathtub instead of like five or six right. years. Exactly. Exactly. This is this the, um, is this the uh, biggest study ever done of hard drives? It must be. Well, uh, yes, there have been lots of littler studies. There it actually filed during the same conference, also in this in this um, the uh, fifth Usenix conference was another paper, and we've got a PDF link to it also on our notes page for episode eighty one. Um, uh, two guys. Uh, researchers at, Car- at Carnegie Mellon Uni- Uni- University, CMU, studied very much the same sort of data. They didn't use their own 100,000 drive uh, data set, but they got maintenance data from a number of very large ISPs that were willing to wow. make this available. And so, so they did a similar study. Um, and their conclusions were very much the same. They're, one of the things they found was that they, would talk, they were talking about how manufacturers would quote a, a 1 million hours mean time to fail, M, um, M, MTBF or MTTF, mean time to fail or main, mean time before failure. Well, a million hours equates to 0.88% annual failure rate. You may remember that that Seagate spec I referred to uh, which surprised me. It, it was for a Barracuda 7200.9 drive that quoted a 0.34% right. annualized right. failure rate. Right. So anyway, what, what the CMU guys found was almost the same as what, uh, as what um, Google found. These guys were not looking at smart data because they, they weren't doing you know, real-time smart capture in their whole infrastructure the way Google was. They were just looking at, at like, Basically, aggregating a, did a big statistical study of maintenance reports, but but reading from their conclusions, they say large-scale installation field usage appears to differ widely from nominal data sheet MTTF conditions. The field replacement rates of systems were significantly larger than we expected based on data sheet MTTFs. <laughs> what a which, surprise! <laughs> uh, yeah, which sort of is to say, oh, you mean manufacturers are not. You know, telling us the inflating you know, the numbers. What slightly. we should yeah. Um, they instead also of, say instead of 0.88 percent, it was uh, as much as 13 percent. Well, that's close. Yes, yes. <laughs> that's close. I mean substantially higher. They say for drives less than five years old, field replacement rates were larger than what the data sheet MTTF suggested by a factor of two to ten. Wow. And for five to eight year old drives, field replacement rates were a factor of 30 higher than what the than what the data sheet MTTF suggested. So so basically what I mean this is sort of corresponding unfortunately with people's real world experience. And you know, I mean, you just had a drive that wouldn't boot on you, right. you know, uh, every every week or so I I share a real life experience from one of our customers who, you know, turns the computer on and it says I'm not a computer anymore. Right. You have you know, operating system not found That's exactly or whatever. What happened to me? Yep. And I think I, I read the number somewhere. I think it was 350 million drives were manufactured in 2006. So you know we have you know obviously there's hard drives all over the place. And you know coming back to your point about how this is not really about security, I guess my feeling is well certainly that's the case, but. There's almost nothing more important to computer users than their hard drives. Yeah, well, I mean, in fact, that's that's the, that's the single critical. number one cause of data loss. It's not hackers; it's dying hard drives. Yep, exactly. 
Can we infer anything else or learn anything else from these studies? I know that Google looked at temperature, for instance. Yes, and that was really interesting, too. My my wisdom has always been that that temperature matters. I've seen drives failing due to high temperature conditions. And by the now, way, Google, I think that's what was wrong with my drive. It's a shuttle case, and it was a very small, tight case. And uh, almost yes. immediately, Spinrite said, hey, you're, you've exceeded 150 degrees. I'm going to stop. And yes, and in fact, in fact, it's really interesting. That's one of the things that laptop users often report with Spinrite. I, I actually have a photo that was sent to me a couple of weeks ago of a laptop running Spinrite in a refrigerator. <laughs> Somebody took out not they recommended, took out, by the way. <laughs> they, they they took out all their food and a couple shelves, oh, and they stuck the laptop in the refrigerator. the The, the problem is, I mean, laptops. Are notoriously troubled about cooling. Right. I mean, I'm amazed when I when when you you put a laptop on your lap, literally how hot these things get. Well, I and bought so a 7200 RPM drive in my most recent Dell, and that thing before it even starts working, really, is already blowing very hot air uh, out the side. You know, the fans are working yeah. hard, and I'm sure a laptop yeah, well, had, the, the hard drive has a lot to do with it. Yes, it certainly does. And so what happens is it turns out it's the seeking of the drive when, when, when a drive's um, head actuator is not moving all the only real power consumption you have is the relatively steady state spin of the drive but but from an engineering standpoint or, or from a physics standpoint you you when you need to move the head very quickly to another cylinder you need to mechanically accelerate the head up to speed it flies across the cylinders, and then you need to stop it immediately. So what you're doing is you are briefly applying very high forces laterally to the head in order to get it to, to, to move it from a rest state into motion and back. So anything, even like defragging, for example, which is putting the drive through a great deal of, of exercise, Will will increase the power consumption of the drive, but also a lot of heat. the The energy that is dumped into the drive comes out acoustically. Thus, you hear you know you actually hear the drive doing things. And thermally, it is is the is the other way that the energy is converted from electrical energy. Um, so you end up seeing that the drive's temperature will increase. So Spinrite, using the smart system, is constantly keeping an eye on the drive temperature. To alert people that you know, hey, you've got a problem here with your drive getting beyond manufacturer spec. And when Spinrite says it's a problem, it really is. I mean, I set that to the upper limit of of manufacturers like safe running conditions for a drive. So if anyone can do, if if Spinrite says your drive is running too hot, anything you can do to move more air across it or 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 keep it cool just i mean for normal daily use too would be good yeah in fact that's what i did is i opened the case up and i have a fan blowing air from the window across the now whole system. now here's the problem with google's study which they acknowledge and with for example quote my common wisdom about temperature and that is that their study was based on many years of aggregate data collecting during which time new drives came along, new makes and uh, models, and manufacturer mixes changed. I mean, the, the most poten- potentially interesting thing Google could have told us and deliberately didn't, they referred to it as proprietary information, 
was to show us a breakdown of dry failures by manufacturer. Mm. Oh, who would not known that. Yeah. who would not kill to have that yeah. information? Yeah. You know, I have my secret suspicions of of who would have been top of the list for for drive failures, but um, well, but who? anyway, Google, well, you've got a database. Uh, I mean, you know. Yeah, I never buy Western Digital drives. Oh, that's funny because I do. <laughs> and, and see, and, and, and the reason I the, re, the the reason I hedged and I didn't offer that initially, Leo, is I have said that before, and I've had people say, "Wait a minute, I've never had a WD drive." No, in you fact, know, I put give, Western give Digital trouble. Raptors in every single new computer. In well, fact, now, our, the, our web server is running on Raptors uh, in RAID five. I've got three Raptors on each uh, web server. Well, and the Raptor is a high-end WD drive. You pay a lot I, more I, for it, yeah. Yes, yeah. I do. Th- I do think that that although the Carnegie Mellican, the Mellican, the Carnegie <laughs> Mellon study, the CMU study, did not show that SCSI drives were less error-prone than uh, SATA drives or than fiber channel drives. So they did take a look at by interface type what drives tended sense. to failure more. You wouldn't expect well, the interface to impact that, would you? Although my sense again has has been that SCSI drives were higher end, more expensive, right. and just you know they were built with a little more love and care right. than than you know uh, push them out through the consumer retail channel, you know IDE and 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 SATA drives. But here's my point: my feeling is that uh, certainly this is the case in the last five to seven years. Drive technology is is clearly a moving target these drives are changing internally to such a degree that i'm not really sure that a study taken over a long period Mm -hmm. of years really tells us anything about today's drives Mm -hmm. because for example the google study did show that older drives showed more of a temperature susceptibility that is more of a problem to temperature than newer drives so you you might assume then, first of all, that okay, maybe as any drives get older, they become more temperature susceptible. Though I don't know why that would be the case. Or you could assume that newer drive technologies are less are always going to be less susceptible to temperature than older drive technologies were. So, for example, five years from now, a repeat of this study. On a more on a, on like a next generation population base of drives would yield different results. They so, said that so was actually think, the greatest, the most surprising result of the study was that temperature didn't seem to have much to do with failure rate. Yes, and and that had, and well, and what's bizarre is it turns out that the failure rates were higher for cooler drives. <laughs> there hmm. there was actually you had to get the drives very hot before the the reliability finally spiked. Right. Um, in 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 the negative or running drives very cold, they just didn't seem to like that. Huh. Which of course is not much of a problem because they heat up pretty quickly. Right, right. Uh, a very interesting study, and uh, as Steve mentioned, there are copies of this study and the uh, CMU study from uh, Bianca Schroeder and Garth Gibson on his website. So you can read this. This is all from Fast 07, the fifth Usenix Usenix conference on file and storage technologies, which just happened uh, over Valentine's Day weekend. Right. So, you know, the, my takeaway from all of this, I mean, it's it would be very cool if we could tell people before their drive was going to fail with a high degree of reliability that it was going to. On the other hand, if you cry wolf, you know, once or twice, no one's ever going to believe you again. Right. And, you know, and, and you know, the common wisdom is, of course, 
back up your data. And, and so, you know, where, where, where I am with, with, with Spinrite and, and where we've always been basically is saying to people, look, the best thing you can do is keep a current backup. That's, I mean, that's really your, your only way of knowing that, that your data is going to be safe. But people, you know, never get around to it or their backup's a few months old and they did some really important stuff in the last few months that they, they have to have back. So, you know, the good news is with Spinrite, there, there's a way of, of at least turning back that clock a little bit, maybe getting, you know, if it doesn't completely fix your drive, it'll get you back going again long enough to pull your critical data off. Well, so, well you, remember, you, know, you remember what HAL 9000 said in, uh, in 2001. I would recommend that we put the unit back in operation and let it fail. So even, even I then, would recommend. even 2001, that was a recommendation. So. Yep. That's pretty much the way it is. And certainly you're not going to pull a drive just because smart says to. <laughs> that would be a big mistake. Right. Uh, main thing and, is and, back and, up, and, for crying out loud. Just make backups. And, and, right. And more often than not, smart won't tell you right. that a drive is failing, and uh, it does anyway. Yep. Well, we thank you for uh, summarizing. I think it's fascinating stuff, and uh, I hope you uh, folks don't mind that we diverted a little bit from our security a topic, although, as Steve pointed out, there's nothing more important than keeping your data secure, and certainly your hard drive is the front line of defense there. We are brought to you, as always, by the good folks at Astaro, the makers of the Astaro Security Gateway. They just announced version 7, some significant new improvements. We've talked about them before, things like transma- uh, transparent email encryption and decryption, which means your entire enterprise can be using email encryption without having to worry about teaching everybody how to do it individually. It's just fantastic. Uh, also. Uh, you'll find that signatures are enabled using S-Mine or open uh, P- PGP standards. I use S-Mine myself. It's great. Um, of course, I have an Astaro gateway. That's that's why. Uh, inbound <laughs> mail is also automatically decrypted. Uh, they've got remote access via SSL. That's significant. You've got IPsec, L2TP over IPsec, PPTP tunneling with SSL. Uh, makes it so much easier to enable. And, uh, of course, all sorts of useful things, including scalability via clustering, the usual anti-spam, firewall, uh, intrusion detection, uh, anti-phishing. I mean, it's just a really superb unit. And uh, you could try it absolutely free by uh, calling Astaro um, or visiting them online at astaro.com or call 877-4-ASTARO to schedule a free trial of the Astaro Security Gateway now in version 7 in, in your business. By the way, you can now, and this is... I think really fantastic news. Download, uh, if you're a non-commercial user, not only, you could always download the ASG software because it's open source and free, but uh, for non-commercial use. But now they're going to include all subscriptions and a Starro up to date. This was used to be a 79 euro per year subscription. Now that's absolutely free. Just another reason to visit ASTARO.com. We thank them so much for their support of Security Now. So I'm going to keep my Western Digital Raptors, Steve Gibson. I'm sorry. That's okay. Yeah, well, and, you know, my favorite drives were always, when I decided to, because I had several WD drives die on me, and I thought, okay, you know, when am I going to learn a lesson? I switched over to Quantum, and I've loved Quantum drives for years. Then MaxDoor bought Quantum, and then, as you know, probably recently, Seagate bought MaxDoor. Right. So, so it's all the uh, same now. <laughs> There's really yeah, only two well, companies, basically. I guess and, and again, and the, there are, yeah, there are, there are, well, and what, I think Hitachi bought IBM's drive business, oh, did right? They? The, oh, all right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so, 
No, the, the problem is drives are phenomenally complex. There's so much to go wrong with them yes. that, you know, uh, they fail from time to time. And I should mention that the drive that I uh, had problems with was, in fact, not uh, the Western Digital Raptor. It was, it, I think it was a Mac store drive. The Western Digital has been wor- working in there flawlessly, and I have one in my Mac, one in my PC. I have every machine. I just buy a Raptor because I like... Now, tell me if I'm wrong, but I believe, this could be a completely fallacious belief, that the 10,000 RPMs uh, makes a difference. It also has a 16 meg cache in speed, right? I Oh, in speed, absolutely. There, you will get, definitely be getting a transfer rate performance yep. because you're literally you're spinning the you're spinning the drive faster. So not only right. do you have a higher data rate, but you have a lower latency because it's going to take less time for the sector transfer to begin. Yeah, that's why it's not my boot drive; it's my media editing drive. Uh, right. We record to the Raptor and we edit on the Raptor because uh, I want all the speed I can get. Well, again, I didn't mean to badmouth WD. I know there are there are other people who who really like Western Digital drives, you know. So it's just like you know, to each your own. It's like people yeah. have have cars they like and and cars they don't like. I think so. also uh, it's probably true across the board. The cheaper drives are going to be less reliable. Higher density, cheaper drives. Um, oh, one thing I did pick up when I was doing the research for for today's show, although obviously I, I live and breathe this stuff, so I I knew a lot of it. But one of those studies talked about the lower reliability for higher head count. And so there is the feeling I had had intuitively that smaller drives were more reliable. But we thought it might be aerial density. It turns out to be the heads that matter. Well, yes, because the smaller drives only have a single platter. And what they're doing is they're adding platters, which is why drives jump Typically, by for example, by 80 gigs, or, right. or in some cases, 40 gigs, it'll go 40, 80, 120, 160, right. Right. because they, they're actually adding they're adding surfaces to the drive. And it turns out, of course, that you know the more of that stuff you've got in there, any one of them failing will bring the drive down. So the fewer you have, the more reliable it is. Excellent. This stuff is good to know. Folks. <laughs> That's why we always listen to Steve Gibson. If you want uh, copies of the studies and more information, including uh, information on how to turn off ad hoc uh, networking. Wi-Fi and anybody networking. with anybody using Wi-Fi with XP absolutely should do this. You want to go to our notes page and follow that. Yep. Yep. That's at grc.com. That's where you also find 16 kilobit versions of this show for the bandwidth challenge and uh, Lane's fantastic transcriptions. By the way, Steve, uh, you've inspired me. We're going to do a deal with a company to do transcriptions of many of our other shows, too, because I think people really do enjoy uh, reading along often. Uh, with the show. I get a lot of great feedback about it, and, and of course, it makes it also text searchable. So Google right. and other search engines are able to find those articles right. and then and refer people to them. Yeah, I think it's a good, a good thing. GRC.com. That's where you'll also find, of course, Steve's free security programs like Securable and Shields Up and... Uh, his uh, day job, Spinrite, a great file recovery maintenance utility. Uh, we've wrapped it up. We'll see you next time on Security Now. Sounds great, Leo. Security Now.